0: Good morning, church. Morning. Welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church. Those of you who are with us in the building today and with us online, we welcome you and enjoy the opportunity to worship our Lord together. We do have a new memory verse, this for the month of November. It's hard to believe that just in a few short weeks we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving. And it's interesting, as Michael was sharing this morning before he prayed, it made me think a great antidote for anxiety is gratitude. Gratitude. Thankfulness, and uh, that's something that our verse for this month reminds us of. So let's say it together as a congregation today. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Good. Sorry about adding the word chapter in there, but it's all right. We figured it out. I want to talk about anxiety real quick here Uh, as a side note that will lead into the message today. Uh, This week, we had a new event happen in the Lenhart family household. We now have a child that has a driver's permit, and I think the Lord has a sense of humor because... We're talking uh, in some ways through a memory verse about anxiety. You heard anxiety mentioned uh, by Michael uh, this morning as there's an election upcoming, which we'll talk a little bit about in our message today uh, a little bit later. But boy, just overall in general, anxiety is a thing that is very real and heavy in our culture and community today. And when I was with my son the other night, we were practicing in a parking lot uh, in Quarryville. I won't tell you where. It's okay. Everything was good. Um, and and I just was sitting and, and I was, I had to, in my mind, I'm like preaching to myself, stay composed, be calm, be gentle with your words and soft and nothing sharp. And I'm like jamming my foot on the floor and there's, there's, <laughs> there's no brake on the passenger side. Why is there no brake on the passenger side? And uh, I'm like, hey, can we just Move it over when we're on the road. Like, can we just get on towards the yellow line a little bit more? Because I feel like we're about to fall off the side of the road. Um, And he's, oh, Dad, you just aren't used to riding in the passenger seat. Okay, well, you know, that could be part two. But it it has been a very interesting few days. He's gotten much better in just a few days. Um, But he came in today, and the first thing he said to me is, hey, I'm driving home. I'm like, oh, boy. Okay. Well, we'll see. Everybody, watch out. You better get out of here. As soon as ABF's over, you better flee. Flee. Brighton will be on the road. So, yeah. <laughs> we go out and go left, just so you all know, if you, if you really want to be safe, though. So, but I thought about this, you know. Here, here, he has a driver's permit. Now, it's not a driver's license. We anticipate in six to eight months, hopefully with the amount of work and time that he puts in. You know, they give him an app now that they track their time on, and it keeps track of their time at night and during the day, and so they can see when they get their hours in. Our hope, though, is in six to eight months, that driver's permit will become a driver's license, and he can drive on his own. But the in-between is where he's living right now. The in-between is where We are, as his parents, living right now, anxiety and all. You see, just last week, he didn't have a driver's permit or the ability to drive a vehicle. Now he does. But he has not yet attained or obtained that future reward, which will be a driver's license. And so between now and then, he has a lot of work to do to learn how to be formed as a fully mature and functioning driver. Now, there are no perfect drivers out there. All right, I hear some give. Some of you may think you're a perfect driver. There are none, and there won't be. But while we're working towards that driver's license, we expect that some of the habits and patterns that we're practicing while on the road are going to get sharper they're going to feel better. I'm not going to feel like I have whiplash every time I get out of driver's, the passenger seat and he's been driving. <laughs> it won't feel that way because he's going to improve. Because he wants that reward. He wants one day to be able to say, I have a driver's license. How about for us? As believers, as followers in Christ, we have been given this incredibly wonderful free gift of salvation. Nothing coming nothing by what we've done. It's a gift that's come from God, solely coming from Him. And here we are. We are living in this world, knowing a future inheritance that will one day perfectly be ours. Yet, while we are here, now today... We can be practicing, putting into practice some of the principles and patterns of that future kingdom, that future reward that we will one day know fully and perfectly. These are some of the things that Paul's exploring in his letter to the people who are formed as a church in the city of Philippi in the empire of Rome. And as we enter our text today, it's chapter three. We're towards the end of chapter three, verses 12 to 21. There's a few questions that Paul's exploring. As believers in the church who are forming into the image of God and conforming to Christ, we would expect that the zeal that once was would now be redirected, just as it was in Paul's life. We would expect that there would be a desire to embrace a mature and a whole point of view. We might anticipate that along the way, there is going to be people existing both inside and outside of the church or the Christian community that could be a distraction or a deterrence to our formation. And we would also think it important to know how to prioritize our citizenship. These questions and others are ones that Paul was going to explore in our text today and before we read God's word Philippians chapter 3 12 to 21 let's take a moment pray and ask him to be with us in our time of study together father thank you that we can form ourselves around this text today we come as a broken and needy people lord there are some here today who are just filled because they've been through so many good things, and they're just praising you as they sit here rejoicing today. And Lord, there are others who are just getting through on the day-to-day. It's hard. And Father, still others who are grieving and mourning because of loss that's been suffered. We all come today, Father, every one of us, No matter where we're at in our walk, we come with need. And the marvelous and mysterious thing about gathering around your active and living text is that your spirit is at work right now in this practice. As we're formed together and our eyes are in your word together, your spirit is working to apply to each and every person here exactly what he or she needs to hear today. We give you praise for that, Lord. We don't understand how it works, but we do recognize that it is marvelous. And we are thankful for it. So as we read and study your word today, as we learn more about what Paul had to say to the people of God in in Philippi, I pray that we would take the words uh, that we would learn how they would be useful in our lives, and that we would apply them as we leave this place, that your Spirit would deliver to each and every one of us exactly what we need for this moment we're living in right now. And we want to give you the glory. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, 12 to 21, Paul's words. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't it amazing that it was Paul's emphatic zeal that had once led him to persecute the early church? But here and now, as one who was found in Christ, Paul's eagerness and his energies were being redirected to build up, to encourage, and now even to cheer on the churches that were forming in the Roman Empire. Last week, we ended up with Paul's words encouraging the Christian community in Philippi to be conformed to Christ, to truly know Him in a personal and intimate way, to share in His sufferings, to know the power of His resurrection, and finally to attain to our ultimate reward, our ultimate gift as we will experience in the resurrection from the dead unto eternal life with God. And with a renewed energy and purpose, Paul's desire now is for the Christian community to be compelled and motivated by the example of Jesus. To not grow complacent or in the uncertainties of their future even become apprehensive in fulfilling their charge. And, church, we've we've read this before in this letter, and we know that there were many factors that would have appeared to be working against the church. Where is Paul when he's writing? He's under house arrest. Epaphroditus, one of the Philippian church's own emissaries to Paul, had fallen gravely ill. The Roman Empire's influence and the influence of pagan temple gods around the people of Philippi was strong. Persecution of early believers was an ever-present threat. The allegiance to Caesar as Lord above all was still the expectation for every Roman citizen. And all of that was true, yet none of those realities were to stand in the way of the church staying focused On its Messiah, on its mission, or the message, the gospel that it had been given. And so with intentionality in his writing, Paul is using his words to stir the imagination of the church towards images of a distance runner. We see this in the beginning of the text. He's using words like attain or obtain, strive, lay hold of, press on towards. He's talking about a reward. It's very interesting, uh, I, as I was thinking about this this week, my second year of college, uh, our, the cross-country coach at the college came up and said, hey, would you run cross-country? And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't do that. He's like, but we really, we really, really need another male athlete to run in order to keep our NCAA eligibility. If we don't have a runner, we will lose our eligibility. And I was like, okay, I'll take one for the team. I could be a good teammate. And I really had never run more than like a mile, maybe a mile and a half at one time in my life. And I remember the first time I was out on this beautiful cross-country course, which cross-country, I didn't even know what that was. i was like golf course, cross-country course, like what are we talking about here? And I was running and and I was going to school at the time near the Poconos, so we were in Scranton and and, and it was fall, cross-country is in the fall, and you can imagine how gloriously beautiful it was. And, and we were going down this hill, and when you're going downhill as a runner, you just lose track of everything. You're just like, oh, man, well this is great. Why did I have any reservations about this? And I, and I turn a corner, and I, and I have some guys with me, and, and I'm running through the woods, and I'm looking to my left and right, and, and my favorite trees, fir trees. There were fir trees everywhere. Big, giant, northern, Douglas firs and just lining the trail. And I'm like, this is awesome. I'm like, yeah. I'm like come on, I'm picking up the speed a little bit. And I turn the corner, and I see the other side of the hill I had come down. <laughs> and there's a guy to my left, and I remember I'm looking, and he's like, just lean forward a little bit and pump your arms. He's like, it'll be okay. It wasn't okay. It was, it was not Okay. And it was one of those hills, I got about halfway up, my thighs were burning so bad, everything in my legs, my, I'm like, <gasps> doing one of those things, and trying to get up to the top of the hill, and, and I remember getting up to the top, and, and at that point, there was only like one or two other people around me, because I was back far, and I was like, do we have to do that again? And they were like, no, and I was like, oh, man, thank you, Lord, thank you. But I just, I just, as I continued running and thinking about that, I thought, you know, it's so good that uh, I didn't have to. We don't have to think about the things in our past. We can't worry. A runner can't worry about the obstacles in their past. I can't keep going on thinking on the rest of this run, man, that was a bad hill, and let it affect me the rest of the way. I had to move on to keep the goal in mind, the finish line, and strain for the things that lay ahead. And for those of us who are being formed in Christ, all of us who call Jesus our Lord and our Savior, our upward call is far more imperative and requires the totality of our focus and attention while the Lord keeps us here on earth. There's work for us to be doing, whether we're young or whether we're old. He has a purpose. And the mood of this letter, it remains that though there is grief in this world and sometimes the odds aren't in our favor and though it can be difficult life and filled with disappointment, we're called to look above and beyond our circumstances, grabbing a hold of and clinging to the greater image who is Christ paul 's suggesting to the church that living this way it 's not easy it's it 's like a cross country runner or a marathon runner it 's hard it 's going to have its peaks and its valleys and not always be comfortable, but it 's marvelously hopeful and it 's magnificently life giving i 'll never forget the first time I actually crossed the line of my very first cross country race that I was in, and my goal was to not finish last and it, it was my goal, and i didn 't finish last. And I remember that sense of like accomplishment. That was something I had never done before. And it was fulfilling. It was amazing. But a question remains for the Philippian church, for us today, for those of us who come with hurt and difficulty and heartache and loss in our life. How can we be joyful even in the difficult things? You know, we wait and we wonder and We walk through all sorts of different situations while we're here. And sometimes in the heat of the moment, let's just be honest, we get it wrong. Our responses to things aren't always God-honoring. Sometimes they're very us-focused. When relationships break down in our lives, we have very often contributed in some harmful way to the breaking When things don't go our way at our place of employment with an important decision uh, or, or something else that's going on, we can sometimes complain and whine or argue or bicker or otherwise just be generally miserable about it. Sometimes, friends, we think about our children and our grandchildren and there's all kinds of things going on that are difficult in their lives. And... We lose our patience, we lose our understanding. Sometimes it's a difficult medical diagnosis that moves us towards anger at God or perhaps anger towards those who most care about us in our lives. Other times, it's through the terrible pain and grief of losing a loved one that we might turn to behaviors or lifestyle patterns that are detrimental to our personal or others' well-being. Students, there's school challenges at home, at work, on the job. There's temptations. There's pressures. There's all kinds of difficult situations that you face that are consistently present in your lives. And sometimes, if I can just speak to the kids, the teenagers, the young adults in this room, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fail, we're going to let people down. We're going to forget or ignore sound biblical wisdom and advice. And what usually follows is pain and heartache and brokenness. Friends, that's a reality. We live in a fallen world and sometimes, quite honestly, it makes it difficult for us to shine and have effect for Christ because of the challenges that we live. Yet here's what Paul discovered regarding joy in all circumstances. And and I believe his vision can be ours as well. It's hopeful. Though we don't live perfectly, and we don't always respond rightly to difficult things here on earth, and our attitudes aren't always right, and sometimes we are just in the deepest, darkest recesses of grief and mourning and feel like we can't get out, we can rest assured that we have a Savior who fully understands and knows he knows us. He knows how we feel. He knows our hearts. He's promised to be with us in those difficult places. And where we have failed, some of us in our lives, where we've gotten it wrong, we can rest assured that our savior never, ever did. He lived perfectly and righteously in this world. And his righteousness is applied to those of us who believe. We talked about that last week in the text. And now it's how God sees us, even when we mess it up and get it wrong here on earth. Friends, I mess it up and get it wrong. All right, and I say this a lot, but just talk to my wife. She lives with me, she knows. Christ's righteousness has become ours. His absolute faithfulness has overcome persistent patterns of faithlessness. in our lives, and in this, we can rejoice. We can have joy. And on another side, for those of us who are walking through times of grief and mourning and really dealing with heartache and pain and struggle in our lives because of loss, because of difficulty that's going on, there can be sorrow that lasts for a night with our heartaches. And with those difficult situations. But the promise of God's word is that joy comes in the morning. And we can see that joy and experience that joy when we recognize that we've been given everything we need to get through the most difficult things in life. In Christ Jesus. He's with us. He's our anchor. We can grab hold of him. We can cling to him. And he will be faithful to carry us. Amen? Amen? Friends, just look at Paul's life. I mean, if there's anyone in the Bible who could have spent a lifetime mourning and holding on to the horror and the grief of his life before Christ, it could have been Paul. And we know what he did, what he was involved in before he came to Christ. He had to forget those things. He had to leave them behind. He could have given up when under house arrest, awaiting a trial that would have led to his ultimate conviction of guilt. He kept on striving. He could have been caught up in the worry and anxiety over the future growth and flourishing of the many churches that he had planted. He could have been consumed with worry and doubt over his effectiveness as a minister of the gospel while in prison. Instead, he grabbed hold of his most precious and treasured prize, which was Christ. And with his mind wholly set on Christ, Paul witnessed a reformation in his own personal life. And he was certain that for the churches in Philippi and all the ones following them, that we too, with the same mentality, could find ourselves rejoicing as we are continually renovated and renewed by God's work, the power of God at work within us. Paul's life was reformed. He says this in verse 15. You can look at your text. Therefore, let those of us who are mature, or perfect in some translations, embrace this point of view. And if you think otherwise, God will reveal to you the error of your ways. Now, there will continue to exist in our communities those who will be more concerned with their own way, their own agenda. Paul's talked about these people earlier in verse 2 of this same chapter. Their own credentials. What they think everyone else should be doing than with Christ. Paul says, let those who are, ma- are mature embrace laying hold of Jesus and clinging to his work and his example as our pattern for living today. For those of us who desire to live from a point of view that prioritizes something other than Christ, Paul is convinced that in time, God will show us the error of our ways. Christ's example, his mind, his attitude, as Paul's presented in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, they always prove to be the better way for our lives. And I'm reminded, and I think we should be reminded by Paul's tone of words here, that grace and patience are important qualities for the Christian community. Paul doesn't expect that every believer in the church is always going to be living according to this ideal, nor does he anticipate that all within the Christian community, or certainly those outside the Christian community, are going to agree on Christ as the ideal. Every believer is being formed into the image of Christ at their own pace, rate, or consistency according to the Spirit at work within them. So then, friends, sanctification, it's a big word that we use, pertain to spiritual growth. Sanctification and conformity into the image of Christ, these are Spirit-directed processes. They work according to God's timing and God's purposes rather than our own. Paul is also neither saying nor is he implying that there is any follower of Christ today who can be truly perfect or fully mature here on earth. Physically, while we're here on earth, none of us are ever going to be perfect. And all of the spouses in the room said, Amen. <laughs> We're not going to attain to perfection here on earth. It's, it's not a possibility. And there's some doctrines in different denominations and churches that do kind of teach towards that end. But, but we wouldn't necessarily agree with that. And we don't believe that that's what Paul's promoting here in this teaching either. Rather, with Jesus' standard as the image of perfection, we are to live in a way that is consistent with the example of Jesus. And that is evidence of maturity or maturing, a word that sometimes is referred to as perfect in the Bible. Jesus' own example is the point of view that those who are mature within the Christian community will find captivating and be invigorated by. And being formed into his image should consume the totality of our lives here on earth. How am I better at loving? tomorrow, than I was today. How am I better at imaging Christ to my wife and my children and the people God draws me into community with tomorrow than I was today? And that's a question that we can daily ask ourselves as we desire to see our lives and our attitudes and our minds formed into the image of of Christ, Look at what he says in verse 16. Let us live up to the standard that we have already attained. The standard that we've attained is Christ. Jesus indwells us. We have life in Him. And as we live and His Spirit is at work within us, our lives should start to look more and more accordance in accordance with the patterns of His life. Not only is Paul talking about his own and the churches and our sanctification in these verses, but he's also expressing something regarding stewardship. The care that we take to shepherd and maintain the good gifts that God has given us. The greatest gift of which is our life through Jesus. Paul's words here remind us that this gift is not, it's not just something that we sit on our hands and wait for until later. And there, there is that mentality. I have my golden ticket I'm going to heaven, so I'm just sticking it in my pocket, sitting on my hands and waiting for that day to come. Paul doesn't encourage that in any of his letters. That mentality would not be supported in the Scriptures. There's a way to this life. There's fruit that is to be produced in the life of every believer. Abundant fruit that comes through the work of the Spirit in and through our lives. And along the way, There are going to be distractions. Do any of you get distracted? All right, Right? We're going to talk about distraction a little bit later on. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be groups of people, even individuals who threaten to disorder our focus. Paul's warned us of one such group in chapter 3, verse 2, and now in verses 18 and 19, he's going to describe another one of these groups. And in this portion... Of his letter, Paul's really introducing us to these two groups of people that threatened to disorder our focus. The first was those who rely on the law, human tradition. This is in verse two, their own efforts, their own credentials. In Jesus' day and in Paul's, these groups would broadly be identified as the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Judaizers, uh, even within Judaism. Or outside of Judaism, It could have been those who were entangled by the customs and codes and laws that were built into the pagan temple worship systems. They, too, were bound by the laws of their own systems. Either way, the priority and the order were on effort and credentials and law before Jesus And if we want to kind of illustrate these, I'm going to kind of draw a picture of three different groups here. If we want to illustrate them, if you want to draw on your notes, you can do this. Uh, Perhaps on the first one, we just draw a line, uh, a horizontal line. And on top of that line, you might write the word law. And at the bottom of that line, underneath of it, you might write the word Jesus. So for the Judaizers, law came before Christ. But there is another group. In verses 18 and 19. And and Paul is describing this group through tears. This is a challenge for him. He's sharing his emotions here. He knows that there are many within the church who knew and had close relationships with many from this group. Perhaps even some in this group were existing within the faith community in Philippi. Perhaps Paul himself was in close relationship. Look at what he says. Verses 18 and 19, it's on your screen. For many live about whom I have often told you and now with tears. I tell you that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They exalt in their shame and they think about earthly things. And for this second group, we might draw that horizontal line again. And on the top of that horizontal line, we we might write the word, me, M-E. And underneath that horizontal line, we might write the word, Jesus. Because for this group, we could sum it up by saying, me, I come before Christ. Enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ. Instead of their end being life, which is the end for all who believe, their end is destruction. And just like he used three phrases to characterize the group in verse 2, again, Paul's going to use three phrases to characterize this group. You can see them in the text. Their God is their belly. They do what feels good. They're greedy consumers, living however they want regardless of how it might affect anyone else. He then says they exalt in their shame. In verse 3, Paul's described that true worshipers are those who exalt in Christ. But this group is not that. Rather than exalting in Christ, this group is exalting in shame. They celebrate the things that grieve the heart of God. Relevant to our culture today? I think so. It could be the mistreatment of other people. The mistreatment of spouses or servants or children. It could have been exalting in overindulgence of food or drink. It could have been in the extravagance of their wealth. Exalting in that. Perhaps exalting in a disordered relationship or lifestyle. All things that dishonor God. That people exalt in. In our culture and our world today. Then he says this. They think about earthly things. We're talking about being consumed by the matters of this day and age. And friends, let's just be honest. It's not hard today to get consumed with the matters of this day and age. They're being led astray In other letters, Paul's written about people that are led astray into myths and fables and conspiracy theories or endless genealogies or otherwise. And all three characterizations have in common this overarching image of a voracious consumer. Both groups, friends. Both. The group in verse 2 and the group in verse 18 and 19. They are out of order with the standard that Paul has presented in Philippians 2, 5-11, which is Christ. And Paul gets it. He knows, he understands the complexity and the struggle of living in between these two groups. He knows that these groups are always going to be present throughout every generation, everywhere. And friends, we desire to live as an alternate group in this world. For those who are in Christ and are desiring to live according to his mind and attitude, we might draw a third horizontal line. You can draw that third horizontal line. And right over top of that horizontal line, right over top of it, you could write this, my life. Right over top of the line, like over the ink. And above it, you can write Jesus And below it you can write Jesus, and to the left of it you can write Jesus, and to the right of it you can write Jesus, and you can even write Jesus all the way around in a circle. And just embody it with the name of Jesus. Friends, that is how we desire to live in this world. To avoid the influence of these groups that exist, we need to keep our eyes on Christ. And Paul understands that that can be hard. So who do we look to? Who can we physically look to? Paul tells the church, look to me. Look at verse 17. Be imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and watch carefully those who are living this way, just as you have us as an example. Church, sometimes in order for us to faithfully know we're keeping our eyes on Christ, we need to look at the mature example of other believers who are in front of us. This is the nature of mentoring and discipling relationships, finding older women and men whose lives have been formed through the challenge and struggles that they've faced on earth. Sometimes we refer to these folks as folks with a limp, they've wrestled with the Lord. They themselves have had heartache and struggle and difficulty, yet through the years they've persisted in their faithfulness. Through tears they can tell us to hold on to Christ and cling to Him like He's our only hope. Because they have lived through seasons where that has literally been the only hope that they have had to hold to in their life. They will be vulnerable enough with us to let us see and know how Christ is magnified in their weakness. They will be honest enough to tell us what will be hard and difficult and uncomfortable in our lives. They will be patient and graceful enough with us when we get it wrong or make the same mistakes that they did. These are mentors. These are disciplers. These examples will not be women or men who rely on their own credentials. Oh, let me mentor you because I'm this, 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 and this. That's not the kind of mentors or disciplers that we need, like the group from earlier in chapter 3. Nor will these mentors or disciplers try to create some new or different standard for us to follow other than Christ, because that won't be helpful. That will only lead us to further destruction and pain. Instead, a good mentor, a good discipler, and I pray that everyone in here, especially young people, find one. Find one. Find a mentor. Find a discipler. Older people, pray. Pray that the Lord would compel your heart and mind to invest in the lives of a person younger that needs your guidance and your wisdom. That needs you to help rightly prioritize and order life. So that as the Spirit works within us, our minds are formed in accordance with Christ. And our attitudes and behaviors clearly image that of Jesus. We need older people before us who have done it and are doing it. That we can look to. That can say, be imitators of me. I'm not perfect. Paul was not saying he was perfect. He wasn't saying that at all. Bearing one another's burdens, investing in each other's lives, being able and willing to walk with and walk alongside of one another for the long haul. They're part and parcel of what makes up flourishing and thriving Christian communities when there's discipling and mentoring present. It's interesting, Paul was doing this for the church. Timothy had done it. Epaphroditus had done it. He had given them as examples earlier in the letter. There were others. And as Paul is doing this, imitating the better way as seen through Christ, it's very intriguing in his letter that he looks at a proper priority of our citizenship. How does Paul encourage the church to view our citizenship? Verse 20. What does Paul say? But our citizenship is where? In heaven. Last week, we talked about the most hopeful title that we could ever be given as a child of God through Jesus. Likewise, the most precious citizenship that we could ever know is being a citizen of heaven. And this reordering of priorities should reorient everything for us here on earth. It is exactly why Paul will later challenge and encourage us to not be anxious for anything. We don't need to be. Our utmost title has been conferred. Our most precious citizenship has been rewarded We know these truths, and yet still we participate in so much anxiety and fear based behavior here on earth. There is a lot of fear in our world today that stokes anxiety and worry. The fear that that which is other or different is pervasive and strong within Christian circles and communities. And yet it's the Lord Himself that's taught us perfect love casts out all fear. Now, this is an interesting week that this text fell on. I don't plan this, but we go to the voting booths on Tuesday. And we're going to take part in a tradition of American democracy where we get to vote our leaders into office. And I hope and I pray that we will pray first, then we will go, and we'll cast votes for the candidates who we believe will best represent our communities and most clearly embody and inhabit the qualities of Christ in their leadership. And guess what? Not every Christian in America will vote the same way. Leading up to this day, however, we have witnessed what I believe to be an, a terrible indictment of the shortcomings built within our American democracy. unfortunately, our politicians have discovered that fear is a far more effective tool than actual civil discourse regarding laws, policies, or whatever else they might want to discuss. And so we watch, and we read, and we're mailed ad after ad after ad, stoking fear and denigrating both parties and their candidates. It's to the point where on TV or anywhere online, there is no longer any type of political debate because the parties and candidates can't even agree on who will ask the questions. They can't agree. Even on who will moderate a debate, rather than discussions or civil debates on policies or laws or values that actually might help us get to know our candidates on more personal levels, We're force-fed innumerable and bombastic political ads, the intent of which is to lead us to believe that the people of the opposite party, whichever one is opposite for us, wake up every morning and are just bent on trying to destroy the country. And as I processed this over the last few months, and I knew, like, my own children are like, Dad, what is this stuff? My children from Haiti are really confused. What is going on? Is this America? Does this really represent the best of us? And I've grown older, and as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate the value and the treasure of my heavenly citizenship more and more. Because what I witnessed over the past six or eight months, to be honest, it feels like a circus. In a lot of ways listen to this in September of 2022 according to recent data America crossed the threshold of 1.1 billion dollars of spending on political ads they are anticipating but by the end of this midterm cycle the total money spent on political ads will be well over $7 billion. Church, that represents at least 7 billion reasons why our country is so polarized and divided today. And all of this, all of this economy being spent on political ads while we're living and facing some of the highest inflationary numbers in years, with the cost of food rising at alarming rates and more and more people struggling to make ends meet. Church, there is a better way. Amen? There is a better way. His name is Jesus. There's a better way than stoking fear and division and discord within our communities. There's a better way than turning families and friends against one another, than propagating half-truths or out-of-context statements to try to tear down or demoralize other people. The principles of God's kingdom, they do not allow for the promotion or endorsement of any of those sorts of behaviors. And like Paul, we should be longing for our heavenly citizenship to be fully realized. The truth, friends, is this. We are citizens of heaven First, and our heavenly citizenship ranks far above and beyond any other citizenship we could have here on earth. That's the reality of it. We are to embrace children of God as the most precious title and citizens of heaven as our most precious citizenship, and then walk according to the ways of Christ and live according to the ways of Christ in our world, prioritizing Jesus. And as such citizens, Paul says in verses uh, the end of verse 20 into 21, he says this, We also eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of his glorious body, by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. Paul's hope is in the full and final transformation that all who are in Christ will experience. Either through our death here or through Christ's return, friends, one day our mortal bodies that are subject to death and decay will be transformed to immortal, just as the glorious resurrected body of our Lord was. And while we're here waiting... We don't sit on our hands, rather we embrace the power that's at work within us. There is a spirit alive and active at work in everyone who is a daughter or a son of God. We embrace that and we live by faith that as we are being conformed in the image of Jesus and through his spirit at work in our lives, his fruit will be abundantly produced in our Christian communities and in the communities that we live in. One scholar puts it this way. He said, quote, The promise of His coming is giving without date so that we may live daily preparing to meet our Lord. End quote. My benediction or our prayer as we prepare for communion, our elders can go to the back a while, could perhaps be this. Might the words of our mouths, the meditations of our minds, the motivations of our hearts, and the work of our hands all be in line with the person of Christ and the principles of that perfect future kingdom that hopefully we will all one day soon inhabit.